so much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. You're listening to the AW360 podcast from Advertising Week. On today's episode, I speak with Linda Ong and Sarah Unger of Cultique, a culture insights and strategy agency. Sarah and Linda discuss both why it's dangerous to be over-reliant on data alone and how culture is informing every move for today's most enlightened brands. I hope you enjoy this episode. Linda Ong and Sarah Unger. Welcome to the AW360 podcast. Glad to have you on today, or rather, as the case might be, glad to have you back today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us on and back. Thank you. My pleasure. So give me a little information about Cultique and what y'all do there. Linda, let's start with you. Sure. Well, we're in the business of culture. And so what that means is we help brands and companies identify what their POV on culture is. We really craft a bespoke perspective. It's based on their brand, their business goal, and their audience, um, and really help them understand how to stay aligned with really fast moving times and to use culture as a power tool and a competitive advantage differentiator and really a way to understand their audiences on their own terms. Sarah, anything to add? Yeah, I think that we think about this discipline as something that's so mission critical as the changes in the world seem to accelerate with each passing moment. And so um, my point of view on this, and I would we always say to clients, is if you don't want to do your business in a vacuum, then you need to have a really good read on the cultural environment. It can really help or hurt your business goals, the way you engage with culture, the way your audience perceives you. And so um, we are eyes and ears for, uh, for the people who we work with. Great. Well, a couple of things on that note. The industry has been over-relying on data for quite some time. I also think that on top of that, we've seen so many cultural shifts in the past couple of years, probably the understatement of the week for me to say that. What sort of advantages are you seeing in terms of the, the shift to working within culture with brands? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to take that first. Um, you know, you're 100% right. We've seen more change happen in culture in the last 24 months than have happened in the last 24 years, arguably in the last 100 years. It's very difficult for the smartest companies to keep up because there are so many different constituents they serve and so many ways to look at culture. It can be really like drinking from a fire hose. And so what we really try to identify is not just what's happening, which is a lot of what data will tell you, right? Data is very good at predicting the past and very good at telling you what somebody is doing or just did. It's really very unhelpful, especially in times of great change. We're living in a 
you know, a maelstrom of a perfect storm, very difficult for data to anticipate shifts that are happening in culture. And we see, you know, even through the course of the pandemic, companies like Zillow or Peloton getting caught flat-footed when they failed to anticipate how shifts would happen as people came out of the pandemic or even as a result of activity and behaviors that shifted. Um, and so, you know, what we think of ourselves as kind of like uh, monitoring, monitoring the atmosphere in a very uh, windy and, you know, fraught atmospheric conditions. Um, and our clients almost like building rocket ships. And if you look at what NASA does or SpaceX or Blue Origin, they always have to monitor the conditions and the environment before they calculate their trajectory. And that's exactly what we do with our clients. Sarah? Yeah, I would just add that I think what's fascinating about this is, you know, we we really do think about ourselves as complementary to data. It's we're not at odds with other information sources in the slightest. In fact, we end up using any information we can get our hands on. I think just the world is a very messy and gray place, and there's a lot of nuance um, as well as contradictory data points that people are constantly grappling with and. And we're able to really take a step back and make sense of those contradictions and the contradicting cultural forces and the, you know, reliably irrational nature of humans and the answers that they give in, in surveys. Uh, so I think our discipline really is a necessary um, complement and enhancer of existing data disciplines and, and in some cases instead of depending on the goals just because of the um, incredible messiness and contradictory nature of the larger world. I think we see that a lot in you know politics and polling. It seems like each election we have new surprises, people not behaving in expected ways. And I we have friends who are in this business and we talk to them about the challenges and it's just so nuanced. It's another reason why we have looked at um, many of the demographic approaches that uh, companies still take in some ways because there's nothing better that's readily accepted and broadly used. Uh, we've started doing cultural segmentations to really better uh, approach the psychological nuance that we feel the work demands. Excellent. And what do you tell brands that want to go out and jump right in? There's that whole sort of rocket ship mentality that a lot of brands have, but then there's also that ever-changing landscape of what's going on in everyone's lives that we all kind of identify with. You know, it's, it seems like it would be almost like a minefield, just navigating it at any given time. And just when you think you've made the proper step, there's a whole other obstacle in your way. How do you go about really informing brands and, and letting them know what to participate in, what not to participate in, where to go and where not to? Yeah, that's the that's a great question. And that's exactly really what they come to us for, because we've sort of basically professionalized the academic discipline of cultural anthropology to make it both digestible and very actionable for clients. Um, part of the challenge is, you know, if you just take the C-suite, for example, never mind every single employee at the company, everybody comes to culture with their own bias based on their own lived experiences, their ideology, their goals, their personal goals and professional goals. 
And what every company is finding right now, and you see this really impacting the C-suite more than anything, is that when a company's values and actions are out of step with the, when their internal culture or even just the leadership of the, of the company is out of step with cultural norms on the outside, that's when you get friction. That's when you have, you know, Bob Chapek and Disney having the situation they're having now. That's when you have Bobby Kotick at Activision having the situation that he had, because the expectations of the larger world don't necessarily align with the personal view of culture of, of this, the CEO or the C-suite. And so what we really try to understand is, and, and craft, um, you know, very carefully is a, a very bespoke perspective on what matters, what should matter to the company in terms of what conversations should they listen to, which ones can be more in the background, which ones need to be more in the foreground, which ones do they actively, which conversations do they actively need to be a part of, which ones do they need to lead, which ones perhaps in, in the vein of thought leadership should they be creating and inserting into the culture. And those are very different angles to create a conversation, lead a conversation, or join a conversation. And that's even a question that brands, especially now, when they're really being held as sort of the arbiter of values and culture, really need to have a good handle on. And we're seeing that you can have the most experienced team in terms of business, but if you don't have a cultural strategy, which is increasingly what we're doing with C-suite, is helping craft business strategy based on culture, um, you know, you can really fall in it. I would also add that I think when companies decide to participate in a cultural conversation, we often look at, especially if you're talking about a, a brand or company participating in something in regards to social good, which, which is largely expected, right? Um, brands and companies are controlling the fate of our future in many cases. So there's higher expectations um, to serve as citizens in the world. There's so many different angles that a company can participate in. It's really unlimited. And so uh, if you look at sort of how, how and when and with what tone um, a company should interface with an issue at large culturally, it's really coming from a place of authenticity. Does this company have a perspective that needs to be shared on this topic? Are they doing something formative in the space? We are in the business of helping identify what the cultural conversation is and, and how, if appropriate, a company should participate in it in a credible way. And as Linda said, it's doing it from the perspective of the audience participating in the conversation. So in some ways, our work serves as as a like a cultural risk assessment or risk management, if you will, in order to make sure um, companies are working with culture versus against it. And I would imagine that, and I could be way off base here, but just based on what you've said, some companies, it would make sense for them to weigh in on things that maybe wouldn't make sense for other companies. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that when there, there's high expectations, increasingly so, especially in the last few years, um, with good reason on when companies participate in um, in causes, for example, are they, do they have a leg to stand on? Often we counsel companies to really understand, as Linda mentioned, is your internal culture matching your expectations and your proclamations externally in a way that feels really 
uh, authentic, both for ambassadors internally and ambassadors externally. Uh, so that's a key. That's a key question, right? If you're going to invest in, you know, an environmental campaign externally, how are your environmental practices internally? What are you doing to make your company a regenerative one? So I think those types of questions are very relevant now and will be for the future. You know, interestingly, one of the things that comes up a lot in our industry is the term authenticity, which is <laughs> so often maybe the most, the, the opposite of authentic when you really yeah. think about it, because you're, you're striving for something that, you know, you either are or you're not. Um, but going back to things like the situation at Activision, just as an example, you know, you have this industry that I think is from, from a consumer side in gaming is striving to do better. You know, you read all these articles about how the fans of gaming in general want more equality. They want fewer hours. They want zero tolerance for sexual harassment. All of these things that you would think culturally, you know, at least in our country, we would be standing for all the time. How best can brands proceed when they're caught with their proverbial pants down in situations like this, where the culture would seem to be so obviously directed in, in one area or, or one direction, you know, such as the case of, you know, sexual harassment. Obviously, nobody should have any tolerance for this whatsoever. But yet, culturally, companies struggle with these things, you know, internally, as, as you mentioned. How should they deal with that? Yeah, well, you know, Activision is a really interesting um, case study, and we don't work with them. But from an outsider perspective, and a cultural perspective, one of the challenges with gaming as an industry, and Sarah knows this very well, so she can speak to it in more detail, um, is the, the subculture of gamers is actually very misogynistic and has been historically and continues to be. <clears throat> and Gamergate, you know, from a couple of years ago, um, really kind of brought that to the fore where there is an active and very vocal um, constituency in the gaming world that's very large and can, and can, uh, includes you know a lot of people who are in the business um, that have very hostile opinions and if you don't believe me just go to Reddit about the inclusion <laughs> of inclusion of women and other you know marginalized groups. So I think that you know ultimately when in the situation with Bobby Kotick and the sexual harassment allegations against staffers, you know really the the issue is do you speak to does the does the CEO need to respond to the subcultural ethos that's inside of gamers and gaming or does he need to respond to the stock market and external cultures um, that are, you know, Wall Street's very concerned with ESG right now. Um, and so I, I think in, in that case, Wall Street and, and external culture won out. But it's it's really, the I think the challenge for so many companies now is that they do have, I mean, it, with the, just look at the fragmentation of culture, the fragmentation of political ideology, the fragmentation of content, um, you know, it's it's multiple constituencies now that have a voice and culture is different to each one of those. So part of it, and again, it's where we do a lot of the heavy lifting is identifying for given a, a specific purpose or a specific ask, who's the, who's the constituency that you need to listen to most? And I would also add, I love your note about, I was laughing at your note about authenticity because decades ago, I had a client who was using the word authentic in a brand strategy meeting. And I said, well, just tell me what you mean by authentic. And she literally said, I mean, like those, those 
faux vintage rock t-shirts they sell at, at urban outfitters. Like she literally referenced something that was fake to talk about authenticity. And I think the, the phrase we use a lot is about, you know, really looking at a culture or subculture or group of people, whether it's Latinx millennials or soccer fans or women or black female viewers, whatever the culture constituency is, looking at how they see the world from their terms, that for us is authentic. It's also really a form of empathy that we're really trying to uh, educate brands and, and executives to understand how to see audiences as they'd like to be seen and speak to them as peers, not as not to otherize them or be condescending. Well said, Sarah. Yeah, I think Linda made some wonderful points. So she kind of rounded out the question in a way that I'm, I don't have much more to add, pretty complete. Our industry obviously has a lot of changes underway in, in terms of how we deal with data, private information and so forth. How do you see that affecting culture? moving forward, especially as it relates to our industry. You know, we would like to be more informed about what people want and how we should be conducting ourselves, how brands should be conducting themselves. How do you see that playing out over the next five years or so? And Sarah, let's start with you. Well, we're bullish on it. I'll tell you that much. I think that, um, I think in terms of privacy, yeah, we're really undergoing a revolution in terms of just consumer awareness regarding how data is used. I think it's been fascinating to watch evolutions happen internationally. And I think in general, I'm I'm excited to see how this plays out. I th we're seeing a lot of changes in terms of even just how passwords are used um, and understanding data privacy as our lives move online more and more, right? Especially if you know, metaverse um, predictions come to fruition as many um, as many believe they are. And as we're studying avidly, uh, I think understanding privacy will be very key in terms of maintaining maintaining identity in a way that feels um, feels feels like it is can be conducted with integrity. Right, sharing information you want to share in terms of how culture steps in, I, I think the, the type of data, this really goes back to the initial question regarding sort of how data and culture live together. Um, data tracking is, of course, not a substitute for understanding the nuance of culture, right? It's information uh, that goes into a, a swath of information that needs to be analyzed by a higher source. It's funny, I was on a panel the other week and we were talking about whether AI could really feasibly step in and do the job of cultural insights uh, for cultural researchers. And it's still a very nascent conversation. Um, and the idea that technology can help cultural, cultural insight really reach a new frontier is very exciting. I think that's very interesting, but we do believe that the human centric nature of our ability as higher order humans to do integrated thinking, right? Taking two completely contradictory concepts and finding meaning in them is something that um, society will need for the long term. Linda, anything to add on that point? I, you know, agree 100%. And Sarah said it really well. I would only add that as um, privacy, you know, privacy restrictions continue to sort of limit the amount of information that brands have. 
about customers, the analysis of culture will become even more important. And we would say that, you know, we don't look at ourselves as futurist or trend spotters. We're really trying to understand um, what is what is sort of the psyche that's going on, especially when it comes to cultures or subcultures. And I, I think to Sarah's point, data is only as good as someone's ability to interpret it. We have so many companies, many of them tech-based that say to us, we have so much information, but we don't know what to do with it. And so AI is hopefully maybe going to help contain some of that and, and give some answers. But I think the need for understanding human behavior and attitude shifts is going to be even more important in the next five years. I would also add in terms of the privacy question that you mentioned at the beginning, one area, just an insight that we talk about often is digital well-being being a very fundamental frontier of how um, how consumers construct their overall holistic well-being. We've been studying well-being for a long time, but increasingly we're seeing a shift from wellness to well-being in semiotics, which is a discipline we use as part of our work. Um, and, and that's really dimensionalizing it across physical well-being, career well-being, financial well-being, and we see digital well-being as a key component of this, and that's part of the privacy and um, and data revolution that we've been talking about. Where can uh, people find out more about Cultique? You can go to our Instagram, which is at cultique.co, and uh, that's sort of the most primary place to find us. We will be launching a Substack soon, so be on the lookout for that. We'll let you know, Richard, when that's live. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It was very nice having you on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more content like this and to learn about Advertising Week's global events for the advertising, marketing, and technology industries, including Advertising Week Europe, returning to London this May, visit www.advertisingweek.com and follow us on social media. chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by snackable ai with the ability to unify all content in one place have ai distill the best insights instantaneously and share them seamlessly businesses on snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before learn more at snackable.ai